Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue our series on the second half of world history with podcast episode number 31. With podcast episode 30, we looked at the creation of the now independent country of Israel. We also explored the impact and why America got involved in the Korean War. And the most important takeaway from the Korean War is that America proved to ourselves and the world that the containment theory is worth pursuing to stop Soviet expansion in all areas of the world at all cost in order to eliminate the onset of what they called the domino theory, that if one country fell to the Soviet Union, just like one country fell to Adolf Hitler, then before we know it, one particular dictator is dominating a significant area of the world. So that's the reason why America was really on a high at the conclusion of the Korean War, even though to date, we still do not have a peace treaty resolving that conflict, it nevertheless was never a war to begin with because we never technically declared war. President Truman never asked for a declaration of war. It was what basically became to be known as a police action. So in this podcast episode, we're going to explore amongst other things, why America got involved in the same area of the world, just further south, in a country called Vietnam. Also in podcast episode 30, we explored the latest in terms of the Cold War with the death of Soviet President or Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin, followed in leadership by Nikita Khrushchev, who lessened Stalinism, but not authoritarianism. We also see the, saw the way that the USSR appeared to take the lead in nuclear weapons development with the successful launching and retrieval of Sputnik in October of 1957. The episode ended by me mentioning the outgoing American president, number 34, Dwight Eisenhower, with the egg on our face that we experienced when the Soviet Union successfully, from their perspective, shot down an American U-2 spy plane. And it led, and I, that it caused Eisenhower to have to leave office with tension considerably higher than it was when he came into office between the Soviet Union and the United States. It was also equally surprising that his vice president, Richard Nixon, didn't win the White House as so many predicted that he would be able to. Richard Nixon was a seasoned statesman, member of Congress prior to being appointed or being elected as vice president, which he was faithfully for eight years. With all of the, that impressive resume, it was thought that he would easily beat any Democratic challenger, especially when the Democrats put forth the relatively young 
candidate by the name of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. But as we know, or international listeners who might know of American history, we know that the number, the 35th president of the United States, the one to succeed Eisenhower, was not Nixon, but was Kennedy himself. Kennedy came into office, and as we as we now know in retrospect, is going to have a relatively short duration in, in his first and only term, sadly because of his assassination. And I don't say sadly because of any other reason, the fact that he was a human being, much less a president of the United States, that was violently taken from this earth, leaving a young widow and two extremely young kids. But when Kennedy came into office, he was caught behind the eight ball by experiencing less than 100 days into office, the Bay of Pigs fiasco or nightmare as it came to be known, where Dwight Eisenhower had planned, fully thinking that Richard Nixon would succeed him in, in the 1960 election, when he planned to have an American invasion of the Cuban island in order to overthrow Fidel Castro and put in a government more favorable to the United States. So the, the, the military action was planned in the Eisenhower administration, but to take place in what they thought would be the Nixon administration in April of 1961. With that surprising upset and Kennedy winning, Eisenhower never canceled the plan. Now, clearly, Kennedy could have. He is the president as of January 20th, 1961, at 12 p.m. The moment he finished reciting that oath of office, he is the commander-in-chief. He is the one that could have canceled it if he wanted to. With the respect that he had for the Eisenhower administration, he let the plans go forward. And it turned out to be, again, an unbelievable fiasco in terms of its execution, that the American forces on the beaches and the northern side of the, excuse me, the southern side of the Cuban islands did not have the support they needed, and many were arrested, and it turned out to be a true nightmare and embarrassment for the United States. But now, consider how those actions look around the world. A relatively young president, the youngest elected to date, whose first foreign policy endeavor turned out to be a train wreck. So on the heels of that, Nikita Khrushchev, the premier of the Soviet Union, agreed anyhow to meet with the new president in Vienna in 1961, or I should say outside of Vienna in Austria in 1961. They met at Schönbrunn Palace. It's an absolutely beautiful palace, not only on the bright yellow, or more or less, I shouldn't say bright, but a pastel yellow facade with some of the most glamorous hallways on the inside with exquisite gardens all around. I've had the opportunity many years ago to visit this palace and walk through those halls and even get to the room where Khrushchev and Kennedy actually met face to face. The summit, as it was came to be known, turned out also to be a disaster. And this would be mark or strike two against the young president in terms of his handling of foreign policy. The reason being, though, is that it had nothing to do with policy itself. It wasn't revealed to the public at the time, but John F. Kennedy, despite his youth, or his early 
his young age as being president, had a number of health issues, one of them being Addison's disease. And along with that disease, or as someone would say, it's a symptom of it, John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy, could experience muscle spasms or pain that truly could be debilitating and knock the wind out of him to the point that he had difficulty standing or even breathing, much less talking. The doctors were aware of it and administered more of Band-Aids rather than attempting to heal it because it arguably couldn't be healed. All that could be done was manage the symptoms. So the flight on Air Force One, as it now came to be known as the presidential aircraft, the flight from Washington, D.C. to Vienna was going to be an extremely long flight. His doctors strongly recommended that Kennedy do everything he can to rest, to lay down a lot, get up minimally, but overall just to take it easy. Instead, Kennedy, again, youth being on his side, his young age, again, as I can relate, having three young kids myself, at the age that they were in the early 1960s, he was like a kid on Christmas morning on this big, beautiful presidential plane. He got down onto the floor of the plane and played with the kids and played hide and go seek. He went and talked with the members of his administration. He did everything except follow his doctor's orders that he should rest and relax. As a result, when Kennedy arrived in Vienna, all appeared well. He got to the hotel where he was, or the, the rooms that he was supposed to stay in. And again, going to bed that night, everything seemed fine until he had to get up the next morning. When he attempted to get up the next morning, he experienced extreme physical discomfort and couldn't simply jump out of bed, get dressed, and walk down the hall to meet the Soviet Premier Khrushchev. His condition was so bad that his wife, Jacqueline Kennedy, phoned the Attorney General, his brother, Bobby Kennedy, and the two of them did everything they could to get John F. Kennedy dressed and get him to the meeting room. The meeting, by and large, didn't go well. Kennedy clearly was uncomfortable, and Khrushchev caught this. Mind you, the Soviet premier, who, of course, spoke Russian, couldn't just lean across the table and say, excuse me, Mr. President, what's wrong with you? Even if he could, John F. Kennedy couldn't respond in Russian because he didn't know that. So mind you, these uncomfortable, those as uncomfortable as John F. Kennedy is, he's also going through the laborious process of having to work through translators who would take his statements, have it translated from English to Russian, and then have Nikita Khrushchev's uh, translators translated into Russian for him and to make sure that what the English translators were saying was accurate. So it, it's a very cumbersome, long process. And the summit ultimately spiraled down with no real achievements attained in that summit to the point that the Khrushchev was arguably, in some cases, not only dismissive of the president, but in some cases, embarrassing. So the summit, the second foreign policy adventure of John F. Kennedy, turned out to be a disaster. A third one also materialized. When John F. Kennedy made a bold statement that no physical barriers would separate the people of the Soviet-dominated East Berlin from the peace-loving democratic people of West Berlin, 
dominated by the so by by the United States, France, and Great Britain. In other words, there would be no wall separating both halves of Berlin at its checkpoints. Despite what the president said, the wall went up anyhow. And that also turned out to be a massive embarrassment to the United States. So it literally, by the time 19, the middle of 1962 rolls around, the president has been in office about a year and a half and has, has three foreign policy disasters on his watch. The Bay of Pigs, the failed Vienna summit, and then the rising of the Berlin Wall. So was it any surprise that the worst foreign policy nightmare actually lay ahead of him, not behind him? With what was perceived, that the Russians perceived as clearly American weakness under this relatively young president, the Soviet Union sought to ramp up their security measures by protecting their closest communist allies to the United States, none other than President Castro of the island nation of Cuba, by placing Soviet missiles on the island pointing at the United States. Yes, Cuba became a puppet state for Moscow, but with the funding coming in, Fidel Castro was happy to play along. So Khrushchev started the construction and sent the ships accordingly to start clearing the way for missile silos to be built on the island and to eventually move interregional ballistic missiles to the island nation. Now, you might thought, for depending upon my the background of my listeners on nuclear technology, you might want to correct me and say, wait, didn't you mean ICBMs? There's two types of continental missiles. There's the ICBM and the IRBM. The uh, Of the ballistic missiles, the C is for the continental. Those are for missiles that can travel over 3,700 miles. Interregional is 36.99 and under. So Khrushchev didn't need the intercontinental as the United States is a, hip, is a hop, skip, and a jump away. Interregionals was easier. It, they, were, they were lighter and they were easier to set up. And Khrushchev started paving the way to move missile technology to the island nation of Cuba. Listeners, this American president couldn't have this. With three disasters already on his watch and, and his the presidential record, this has to be stopped. But how? Cuba is an independent nation, as is the Soviet Union. But clearly, those actions beyond threaten the livelihood and stability of the United States. What can we do? So for what became known as the Cuban Missile Crisis, or the infamous 13 days of October 1962, the United States and the Soviet Union came toe-to-toe, belt-buckle-to-belt-buckle, and nose-to-nose with each other, wondering which side is going to blink, or will neither side blink, and we end up launching nuclear missiles and creating which would have been guaranteed to be a nuclear holocaust. Kennedy needed options. More than that, he needed solutions. And he didn't have them initially. The army, the United States Army, 
said if the Navy can get them over there, we'll do another attempt at a land invasion. But look at the way that turned out less than a year, just about a year earlier. There's no way they could pull that off. So a land invasion was out of the question. The Air Force pushed the idea, what about a naval, an aerial assault? But how do you get the missile installations without attacking civilian people, innocent people? So that also had a serious drawbacks. The Navy pushed, obviously, a naval invasion, but only through weapons technology and not boots on the ground. But once again, technically, that isn't an illegal invasion. Is there any happy medium here? It turned out, as the intelligence came in after discussions with a group called the Wise Men, a very close informal circle of highly intelligent and influential and wealthy men that had been advising the American presidents going back to Franklin Roosevelt, that his best option was to simply use the Navy with air support to draw a line around the Cuban island nation between Cuba and the Soviet Union in the larger Atlantic waters. It would be what became known as a quarantine. Draw a quarantine line, the wise men ad advised him. Draw a line that the Soviet unions are warned do not cross. In other words, don't send any of your ships over that line or there will be consequences. Kennedy exploded. And what might those consequences be? That nobody had an answer to. But therein lied the plan's strength. While they themselves didn't know what they would do to a Soviet ship that dared to cross the quarantine line, the Soviet Union also didn't know. And as the wise men said, don't, Mr. President, dare give them an answer. Let them wonder, hopefully let them fear and worry what would happen if they dared to cross that boundary. Having no other choice, Kennedy reluctantly agreed to the plan, and the Navy was sent out to draw this arc around the eastern half of the Cuban island nation, threatening the Soviet Union to not cross that invisible line, but clearly demarcated with the American naval ships drawing that line. The Soviet ships continued to steam forward. They continued to move west or sail west with military hardware on board. It wasn't until the nth hour of the 13th day of this infamous foreign policy disaster that the Soviet Union ultimately blinked and they turned the ships around. What wouldn't be known until some time later is that technically Kennedy blinked too. He agreed to move IRBMs from close to the Soviet Union's border and remove the Jupiter-class missiles and pulling those back closer or with back within the United States. So both sides got something they wanted. But the world did not need to be convinced that nuclear holocaust was truly a matter of a few buttons pushed away. Is it any surprise, and I apologize listeners for how crass this is going to sound, but I want to put it bluntly. Is it any surprise that not long after that 
Cuban Missile Crisis, that both leaders would in essence be withdrawn from office by their own people. One of those leaders would be forced into early retirement and the other would have his head blown off in front of his own people. When I put it bluntly like that, clearly it is an American bias that many of my American listeners, as certainly my American students upon hearing that, automatically assume that, well, leave it to the Soviet Union, those rough and tough people, they blew the head off of Nikita Khrushchev. But they didn't, did they? Khrushchev was the one that went into early retirement. Kennedy would never serve out his term and ultimately be assassinated 13 months later. Ironically enough, the infamous 13 days, 13 months later, Kennedy is no more. With Kennedy's death, he would be succeeded by his vice president, Lyndon Johnson. Johnson comes into the United States, comes into the Oval Office and recognizes how badly fractured that office, rhetorically speaking, really is. Unlike when Kennedy came into office to a unified America, that was turning out not to be the case with Lyndon Johnson as he was sworn in as the country's 36th president of the United States. The cause of the fracture, both domestically and in foreign policy, had a common denominator. Yes, Johnson was fully aware of the disasters of the of the. Bay of Pigs fiasco, the failed Vienna summit, the Berlin Wall going up, and now add to that the Cuban Missile Crisis. But Johnson was a different man, and he didn't want to let those failures taint his presidency. And by and large, they really didn't. Rather, the common denominator that Johnson was forced to deal with goes all the way back to the Harry Truman administration. And his domestic thorn in his side and his foreign policy thorn in his side was the exact same common denominator. It was a country called Vietnam. Vietnam, American intervention into the Southeast Asian nation did not begin as sometimes my students wrongly believe in the Johnson or maybe as far back as the Kennedy administration, but certainly no further back than that when in fact that isn't true. Our involvement with the independent country, when I say independent country, meaning it's not American dominated, but of that country called Vietnam, dates back to the mid 1940s. You see, at the conclusion of the Second World War, the relatively new president, Harry Truman, the 33rd president, knew full well that America's ally, the Soviet Union, might not be an ally much longer. And unfortunately, how right he was. With the Soviet Union having a dominant military dictatorship for a political system with communism as an economic system, was the bipolar opposite of America's freedom-loving capitalist economic system and our democratic political system, where the common denominator is the public's right to choose, the public's freedom. It's no surprise that both countries would eye each other suspiciously at best or go to war with one another at worst. 
So with that knowledge, Truman was fully aware that the Soviet Union had no intention on withdrawing from any of the countries it invaded when it was an ally of the United States, when they were invading Europe from both the East, West, and South to ultimately overthrow or assassinate Adolf Hitler and abolish the Nazi party. When that mission was accomplished on May 8th, 1945, VE Day, America was fully willing to begin the process of returning every country that it had invaded back to its rightful owners and to the native people. Great Britain was also fully willing to do the same, as was France, but not of Germany proper until the absence of the Nazi regime, a new government could be established. So the Soviet Union being an ally as well, the country, Germany, was supposed to be divided up into four equal segments, but the Soviet Union would have none of it. Any territory that a Soviet soldier put his boot on was going to remain under the Soviet flag, period. No questions asked. Amen. The Allies, Great Britain, France, and the United States were aghast. That's not how this was supposed to play out. Germany was supposed to be occupied as America was occupying Japan until independent governments could be formed and elected and chosen by the people, but no sooner. But every other country, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, all of the countries in the West, as well as the East, should have been returned back to the native regimes. Again, the Soviet Union refused to budge. So Harry Truman wasn't dumb. As president of the United States, he knew that not only was so that Joseph Stalin not going to remove Soviet soldiers, what's to stop him from going after newly independent countries in Asia? With Japan being knocked out of the war, the Korean Peninsula, China, countries in Southeast Asia, in the South Asian Pacific, were up in arms now with no, Asia, with no Japanese occupier and were left scratching their heads, essentially asking, what do we do now? What government do we form? What will our economic system look like? Truman was smart enough to know that the Soviet Union was more than happy to help those countries answer those questions by simply flying the Soviet flag, whether they wanted to or not. So America was fully willing to rush in to those countries that had an economic and political and military power vacuum to help fill that void to make darn sure that the Soviet Union couldn't. But I ask my listeners, as benevolent as that may sound on the American side, how do you think the Russian people interpreted that? That's one of the reasons why in my graduate studies, I took a class called Russian Foreign Policy, even though the class didn't exist. I designed the class. I handpicked a Sovietologist as my professor. And between the two of us, we picked books about Soviet foreign policy and American foreign policy, but with one denominator, one common element, that they be Russian or Soviet authors, not American. I wanted to know from their perspective, how did you view America's actions from 1945 through the end of the Cold War? And I was astonished to learn not only new information, 
but a guess at how much American textbooks leave out of this from the Soviet perspective. The way we rushed into the Korean Peninsula when the North invaded the South in June of 1950, sure, the Soviet Union took that as a threat. We want to dominate all of the Korean Peninsula. And then what's next? China? Mongolia? The Soviet states? What? Russia proper? So Russia moved in as well. So the Korean War was the first test or first conflict of this, of this new Cold War mindset. Why would Vietnam be any different? With the Japanese terror, tyranny, tyranny eradicated at the conclusion of the war, France was able to reclaim its colony in Southeast Asia, except for one problem. As a result of not only World Wars I, but also II, by 1945, France was in no position to try to hang on to her Southeast Asian colonies any longer and started to prepare to withdraw. But America knew that can't happen. France knew it couldn't happen, but we're bankrupt. What can the world expect us to do? That's the reason why between now and the next episode, if you have a chance, go to Google Images to a US to a world map and look up the independent dates of so many of those countries in Africa, Middle East, and Southeast Asia. And what you'll find is that many of their independence years follow World War II, when Great Britain and France began to withdraw from all of their overseas colonies. If France withdraws from Vietnam, who's left to fill the void? That was the question that American presidents, from Harry Truman, number 33, to Gerald Ford, number 38, only wanted one answer, the United States. And that's what would bring us into the quagmire known as the Vietnam War that we'll begin with in the next podcast. Thank you for listening. Go to my website, CE Kinsella, if you have any questions or email me as well. If you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.